there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it takes to build a startup, especially in the tech industry, and maybe how to transition from the military into the business world, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest was a regional director at Lyft, where he managed over $2 billion in annual bookings and is currently the chief operating officer at a fast-growing on-demand technology repair platform. And he started out his professional life in the U.S. military as a naval flight officer. But before I introduce you to Steve Taylor, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and it's got unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Steve Taylor, Chief Operating Officer at Fixed, the first on-demand technology repair platform for businesses and companies. And we're going to get into what Steve does and what Fixed does in just a couple of minutes. He's also an advisor at Steve Case's Revolution's Rise of the Rest Fund, supporting entrepreneurs outside of the major investment hubs of Silicon Valley, New York, and Boston. He's also an entrepreneur in residence at Georgetown University, and he serves on the boards of the Greater Washington Board of Trade and the D.C. Police Foundation. Prior to Fixed, Steve was a regional director at the rideshare behemoth Lyft, leading business operations across New York State and the Mid-Atlantic. Those are two of Lyft's largest and most complex territories. In 2012, Steve founded District Ventures, which is an angel investment group funding and advising entrepreneurs who are focused on enterprise business solutions and consumer products. From 2010 to 2015, Steve was a management consultant at PRTM and PWC, that's Price Waterhouse Cooper, primarily working on the development of risk frameworks, talent transformation, and a venture ecosystem program. A graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, Steve served in the U.S. Navy for nine years, and during his time in uniform, Among many operations he was involved in, he flew 18 combat missions over Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Steve, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? (laughs) I'm caffeinated. (laughs) All right. So what kind of coffee do you brew in your family? So I'm glad you asked. So we, we went from a cure to Nespresso. So I have a Nespresso maker. And I'm drinking a vanilla custard cake coffee right now. That doesn't sound like something I would expect. <laughs> a manly man to it's be good. drinking, Steve. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, this is uh, full of surprises. Okay, no, I'm just teasing you. And let me begin again by thanking you for your service to this country. 
Oh, thank you. I also want to let our listeners know that we had a call a couple of months ago as we were getting connected and found out that we actually live like <laughs> we could throw a stone from our one of our homes to another and hit it. That's right. That's right. And if it weren't for COVID and the rain, we'd be doing some person. Yes, we would. And actually, the rain is holding up. We have, I, I should let our listeners know, it is early August 2020. We've got COVID that has locked us down in our homes. And we've also got Tropical Storm Isaias that really, I think, all night long and early this morning was causing some torrential rains here in Maryland. And I think you and I were even wondering if we were going to have Wi-Fi. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, fortunately, the power was held up. Fingers crossed. So let's kick things off, Steve, by getting into where you are now, not where you are geographically, but what you're doing now professionally at Fixed. Could you give our listeners maybe a a higher level pitch on what Fixed is? It's F-I-X-T and where Fixed is in terms of its startup life cycle. Would you say it's a toddler, a teenager, or a young adult? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think sometimes feel we are an infant, and other times I think we are a burgeoning adolescence ready to reach adulthood. Um, I think <laughs> it depends on the day. So Fixed is a startup based out of Baltimore. It's a technology company based out of Baltimore, Maryland. We are an on-demand platform that facilitates the economic exchange of value between technicians and customers. What that means in plain talk is that we provide an on-demand experience, sort of like Lyft or Uber with ride sharing. We provide an on-demand experience to allow customers to request a technician to come to their home or office and fix their mobile devices. So think about the Uber or Lyft app meets the Apple store. Aha. So it's also for just regular consumers like me? It's not just for big businesses? We're growing in that direction, consumer facing, but right now we are specifically focused on the enterprise. So we have large enterprise clients who provide this service to their employees around the country. Got it. So is it like what it, what is that service that Best Buy has? Geeks or Geek Squad. That's Geek right. Squad. Geek Squad. That's right. Yep. And Geek Squad was doing something very similar to us before they were acquired by Best Buy. Aha. Okay. And so how old is Fixed and how many employees does it have right now? So Fixed is about six years old. It was uh, started by Luke Cooper in Baltimore. And we currently have about 22 people on the team. And that their responsibilities range from technical side, product and engineering, to sales, marketing, customer success, and operations. Nice, nice. And how has the coronavirus impacted Fixed? Obviously, many of you, if not all of you, are working virtually, but also how its growth has been impacted. Yeah, I think the coronavirus and people, employees being quarantined and working from home, I think it's it's highlighted the need for on-site, on-demand technology repair, right? So, so one of the services we provide, as I mentioned, is repair of mobile devices, and that's tablets, that's smartphones. But we also do we also do you know IT setup. So whether it's a construction site or it's somebody's home office or it's you know a rental property and setting up Wi-Fi, setting up smart locks and making sure those are set up properly and they're maintained. Those are those are services that we provide. And oftentimes, you know, right now with offices being shut, you don't have an IT department to go to. 
in many cities, you don't even have an Apple store to go to. So if you have an issue with your iPhone, you drop it on the floor, you have to send it in, you have to mail it in. And that isn't always a convenient experience, especially when your employer is expecting you to be online. You have to be connected, you have to be productive, and you can't do that if your smartphone or your laptop drops. So the idea of providing an on-site and on-demand technician that will come to your home or office, uh, I, I think is more important than ever. Your title is Chief Operating Officer. What does that cover? Because we know, and in fact, we just finished doing our Espresso Shots interview. Check out show notes to see if that episode has already dropped. And in it, we were talking about what the atmosphere and the work life looks like inside a startup, especially a tech startup. And so I'm guessing, Steve, that you've got a whole lot more responsibilities in a startup like Fix than you would if you worked for, you know, a more traditional, more well-established business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wear I wear a lot of hats. I think first and foremost, my job And this wasn't in the job description when I applied for the job, but my primary role at the company has been helping bring the founder's vision to life. So the founder has a vision. They they have an idea that they want to create. And I, I view my specific role is to take Luke's vision for the company and bring it to life. And I do that by managing the daily operations of the business. And that that includes the operations team, the client support, sales, marketing, finance, accounting, HR. I do all of that. I am the head of HR, the head of finance, head of operations. And I have a team underneath me that supports that and runs the day-to-day business. And my job is to make sure that the trains all run on time. You know, and, and I look at it two ways. One, I manage down. I manage my team of folks to make sure that they have the resources, that I'm removing roadblocks from them, and I'm providing them a clear vision. And then with my CEO, I am there to free him up from the burden of running a company. So he's able to focus on what I view are his unique abilities, which are sales and fundraising. Got it. How do you think your role as COO of Fixed is different than it would be if you were at a bigger, more established company? Yeah. I So I I would probably have an HR department, a built HR department. I would probably have a predecessor. There probably would have been a COO prior to me that provided me with a warm handoff. I didn't have that. I was, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not necessarily the first COO at the company, but there wasn't a lot of process built when I started. So I had to build a lot of process that didn't exist. I had to build an employee handbook. I had to figure out what platforms the team needed that didn't currently have access to. At a larger company, oftentimes the job is difficult, but a lot of the foundation of the business has already been built. There's processes, there's expectations, there's an HR department, for instance. That stuff exists and and you lean on managers that maybe been there for quite a while. The most senior person on my team right now has been there for five years, second only to the CEO, but everybody else has been there for two, two or fewer years. So I think that, that the challenge of working at a startup company is oftentimes there's higher turnover. Oftentimes, there are fewer processes in place. Oftentimes, there's not an incumbent. There wasn't a predecessor to my role providing me with a handoff. And so you you end up wearing a lot of hats that in larger companies, you might have an assigned manager working on something. You have to oversee that, but you're not actually doing the work. And, and in my role, I have a lot of responsibilities. And oftentimes, I have to go a lot deeper and do a lot more of the work than I would in an organization that has the funding and the experience and the personnel to, to take care of a lot of that for me. And you must enjoy that. 
I love it. I love it. I, I found in my career from larger company, you know, from the US military to large consulting firms to now progressively smaller companies. And part of it, I view it as an education for me. When you're working for a big company, you don't get to appreciate the accounting side of the house, for instance, if you're not sitting in that department. And one thing that I have learned in this role is the importance of cash flow, the importance of accounts payable, accounts receivable. I, I'm getting a true education and a part of the business that I not only did I not appreciate, but I never really, or not only did I do, I just didn't appreciate it because I didn't know how hard it was. And so I find that while I don't enjoy working 24 hours a day, I enjoy the fact that I'm really getting my hands dirty. I'm really getting involved in every aspect of the business in a way that I never have before. During our Espresso Shots interview, we were talking about sort of the the skills that you look for in the young people. Frankly, you said in anyone that you hire and what a startup environment, especially like in a tech startup, but what that environment is like and that you need to have a high risk threshold. I'm just flashing back to when I started out in the nonprofit world and I went, my first job was working for the American Red Cross, which is super big, bureaucratic, the American Red Cross is part of a larger federation of like 180 national societies, very risk averse. And I realized kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears with the bowls of porridge that that bowl was <laughs> too hot. And then I moved to a smaller, still very large, but more nimble, not part of a federation nonprofit called Mercy Corps. And one of the things that I loved about it is that it wasn't bureaucratic. It mm. was very into innovation and into trying new things and being more risky in the types mm -hmm. of programming it does. And I don't mean the risk was at the same level of the risk that you're involved in, but there still was risk in the kinds of ideas that we were going after. And I think that's really fun if you have that kind of personality, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy operating where there are no rules, right? Where where you are, you're, you're literally inventing an industry or you're creating a business and you're responsible for creating structure and building organization. And I think that there's, a, you know, you mentioned the word bureaucracy. It's interesting. I think that there's a, a healthy tension that exists in a startup when you are enjoying the chaos and comfortable in the uncertainty and the ambiguity, but striving for consistency and discipline. And the other, the opposite end of that is bureaucracy, where there's so much red tape, there's so much process, it takes forever to get things done. People are very risk adverse, and everything has to have a very specific ROI with a low chance of failure. And in a startup, you have to weigh that. Like, you know, capital is not a unlimited resource. You have to understand the ROI of something. You have to take calculated risks. You can't just throw caution into the wind. But oftentimes, you're creating something out of nothing. You're, you're building an industry that has never existed before. And you can't live in that world forever. You can't live in a processless world forever. So you strive for consistency. It's sort of like being an athlete. You know, when you're learning to swing a baseball bat, you can't just like willy nilly just figure it out along the way. You have to build a consistent swing and you have to figure out how to build in as much consistency into your process as possible to increase your the likelihood of success every time you step up to the plate. And the same thing is true with a with a startup. And I think that part of being part of a startup is you have to enjoy the process of figuring out what your process is. 
as a company. And that's what I enjoy most about my role is working with people who also enjoy that, who enjoy the ambiguity. They're comfortable with making mistakes, but they're, they're striving for more discipline, more process. And by the way, there's also a point where you reach a certain level of process and consistency and predictability where it becomes boring for certain people. And then that's when people leave a company and they go join another startup because they want to build it from scratch. And there are certain people that are very, very comfortable working for companies that are no longer startups, but are graduating towards that more mature model. And that's when you see an interesting turnover, right? You see layering of individuals and people who are more comfortable in the ambiguity of startup leave and more senior people come in that are more comfortable with process. But I think understanding where you are in that life cycle and understanding what personally you feel most comfortable with is really important as you think about your first job out of university or your second job out of university or where you are mid-career. Yeah. It's really important to understand, especially when you are attracted to the startup world. So take us into a typical day. And I'm sure there really isn't, but as typical as it gets for you in your COO role. So every day begins around 5.30 or 6. And I think this is probably a holdover from my military time. Every morning I wake up, I try to jump out of bed. And you know, now I'm in quarantine, I head downstairs and I jump on the Peloton. I need to start my mornings with a workout. And that provides me sort of with the mental clarity that I need to get what I need done. To see the field in front of me, I need clarity in the morning. Mm. Um, and that's best achieved through a workout. So I work out for 30, 45 minutes. I come upstairs. I have coffee with my wife. Get my kids up. I have a three-year-old and a two-year-old and two dogs. We have a five-year-old cockapoo and a COVID puppy, a four-month-old. <laughs> so my mornings are spent, yeah, you know, house training the puppies, feeding the kids, spending time with my wife after my workout. And then about 8, 8.30 is when my day begins. And I, I'm online, I'm meeting with clients, I'm meeting with folks on the team. But I, the way that I view my week is I, I kind of bucket into two different categories. The first is working in the business. And the second is working on the business. And, and what I mean by that is in the business is really about getting into the business details, understanding the finance, understanding where we are, you know, where our sales pipeline is, any issues with our clients. It's also really important when you're working in the business to be in a technology company, to be where the technology meets the customer. You know, where's the place that the economic value is created? Let's say you're in retail. The economic value is created in the retail store. It's with your frontline associates working with customers. In our case, it's where the technician is meeting the end user and fixing their device. So spending as much time as I can at that location. So going to a job site, watching a technician work with a client, watching that interaction, and then circling back and working with the product team and the engineering team on how to improve that customer experience. So that's that's sort of how I think about working in the business. And then when I think about working on the business, I think about in my current role as COO, again, I mentioned bringing process and discipline. And that's really about understanding, you know, what's our communications structure? How am I communicating to the team? How am I holding the team accountable? What's the quarterly cadence? You know, how do we kick off a quarter? How do we do a mid-quarter check-in? What do my weekly check-ins look like with my team? How do I assess the business health of my team from a performance perspective? How do I close out a quarter? You know, how do I put closure on one quarter, celebrate that quarter, reflect on where we missed the mark, celebrate our wins, and, and, and then carve a path towards the following quarter? That's really working on the business. It's really more focused on the process. And then I think finally, you know, I've worked really hard and I've had some amazing mentors along the way teach me that a busy calendar doesn't mean that you're actually being productive. And so I've worked really hard to free my schedule to make sure that I'm not busy. And 
part of that is part of that is because I want to be able to see the field. I want to be able to not be so immersed in the problems of the business or, you know, involved in so many meetings that I don't have the perspective to look around corners to see problems that may be arising the following day or the following week. And the other thing is, you know, my job is also to absorb the inevitable challenges that hit the business or to hit the individuals on my team. And I need to have a calendar that is open enough to to take direction from the founder that needs me to jump onto a project or if somebody on my team is having a personal challenge or you know whether personal or professional challenge i need to spend instead of a 30 minute one-on-one with that individual on a tuesday i need to extend to an hour i need to have the bandwidth on my calendar to create that time for that individual so i think starting the morning off right thinking about bucketing my to-dos into working in the business versus on the business and then working as hard as possible to not allow my calendar to soak up meetings that don't need to be on there and sometimes i call it jomo this this joy of missing out and and how do you create how do you empower a team so you don't need to hold meetings that you empower individuals to make decisions that and that don't require meetings and then how do you how do you get people to say, okay, there's a meeting on the calendar, Steve's involved, but you know what? It's not really my business function that's being discussed. So I'm I'm going to enjoy missing that meeting and actually get work done. And I have found that to be a really healthy example to set for the team. And from a work-life balance, it's also a great way to ensure that I have time at the end of the day to close the laptop when the work is done and really focus on family at the end of the day. Fantastic. So I'm kind of curious because I think that one of the challenges, especially that young people face as they try to find that first job, is that they're reading job descriptions and there are all these functions in the job description that they may not understand. They may not know how to do. And I hear over and over from T4C fans and other young people that I talk to that, well, because I didn't know how to do that, I didn't apply for the job. And I'm just curious, in your COO role, have there been any functions that you didn't know how to do and you've had to kind of hack your way to figure it out? <laughs> yeah, 100%. I have never, I've never had a finance position. And finance and accounting has never been something that I've been responsible for. I'm sure I've managed a P&L before. But I, you know, I have an outsourced accounting firm that helps with our accounting, our books. But I'm now responsible for cash flow. I'm responsible for tracking how much cash we have on hand and paying vendors and receiving cash from clients. That's something I never had any experience in. So it was part of the job description. I, you know, admitted to the hiring manager, my boss, that I didn't have that skill, but I was eager to learn. And I got three books. I ordered three books on Amazon. They're sitting on my nightstand right now. And I, every single night, I'm reading about this part of the business that I don't know a lot about. Now, sure, there's a lot of like on the job training. There's a lot of exposure. We have a CFO who provides a lot of that oversight and I've been learning from him. But that is that's a part of the business that I knew very little about. And I think that that is that, that's, you know, as you progress through your career, you have to be self-aware to know that you're never going to know everything about business. And even if you know everything, there are parts that you probably don't know as well as you should. So it's it's not about faking it till you make it. It's about admitting where you're not as strong. And when you're in a position where it falls under your responsibilities, making sure you get as smart as possible on that. And then leaning leaning on the team members. I lean into the CFO. I lean into the accounting team that we have outsourced. I lean into them all the time. I admit what I don't know. And it's been a great education. Have you ever experienced imposter syndrome? <laughs> all the time. 
all the time. I think that that is something that most people face, most people feel. But when I, you know, I hear you read my bio, or I look at my LinkedIn profile, I often think that this is, I don't know who that person is, but they, they seem to have accomplished a lot. But I feel all the time that I'm not qualified, that I've never been a COO before. So what qualifies me to be a COO here at this company? But I think that that is once you realize that that everybody has imposter syndrome, and this kind of goes back to like mentors. When you when you have folks in your life, whether it's a it could be a father, an older brother, older sister, a manager, somebody you've worked with in the past, but when you have somebody in your life that is two, five, ten years ahead of you in their career, and they're emotionally vulnerable with you and they admit when they have imposter syndrome, you realize that gosh, this is just something it's like an epidemic. This is something that everybody experiences at all levels. And sure, you get more comfortable and confident in the roles you have, the responsibilities you have, and the job you have. But at the end of the day, like nobody feels qualified to, oftentimes most people don't feel qualified to hold the positions they have. And I think when you are striving to, to, be, to be great, you make a point of surrounding yourself with people who are better than you. And I think that that is something that is then inevitable. And if you're not, by the way, if you're not the, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're, the, you're in the wrong room. And if you're not the smartest person in the room, you see how much growth and development you need. And I think that then postural syndrome becomes a symptom of that. And that's a that's probably a good thing. Well, for the record, I too have experienced it many times. And I wish I actually had exactly what you said. Somebody who was older than I was, who I had that relationship with, who had shared the same about themselves. Yeah. Because you do feel alone and you can have a lot of self doubt. And it's also going, speaking to the point that you've made now multiple times about being comfortable with risk. And if you want to grow, you need to push yourself out of your comfort zone and you will be doing things that you maybe don't know how to do or don't even think you will be able to do. But you just have to have a certain belief in yourself. Mm-hmm. that you will learn it. And exactly as Steve said, you're going to buy books, you're going to read the books, you're going to talk to people, you're going to lean on other colleagues, whether in your company or outside, and you're going to figure it out. Steve, let's flash back to when you were in college. You attended the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, not far from where we are now, and you got your Bachelor of Science. And I thought that was really interesting that it was a B.S., in political science, because I always thought poli sci was a bachelor of arts. But did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? No. And, and the Bachelor of Science in political science is, is unique. So what that means is I had a humanities focus. My studies was on political science, but I had requirements to take math and engineering classes. So hence the, the Bachelor of Science. Did I know what I wanted to do with this degree? No, but I did know that after graduating from the Naval Academy that I was going to have a commitment to serve in the U.S. Navy for a certain number of years, depending on the warfare specialty I chose. I chose aviation. I believe at the time the commitment was seven years to the Navy after graduating. And I knew that I knew that political science with a bachelor's of science sort of with the well-rounded education in engineering and mathematics would provide me like the, the skills I needed to be successful as as an aviator. But but more importantly, I thought that it was going to set me up for success after my military career. I grew up in a family with a grandfather who served in World War II, a father who was in Vietnam. And around the dinner table, around the holidays, you know, I heard stories of my grandfather storming the beaches of Normandy and my, my dad's experience in Vietnam. But more importantly than that, 
they did their service of two, three, five, ten years, and then they got out. My grandfather became a banker, and my dad he moved to LA and got into advertising sales. And so, so I knew that there was a life after the military. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to have fun in the military. I'm going to serve my country. I'm going to do something that I enjoy. I'm going to work with great people. I'm going to do a challenging job. But, but what am I going to do afterwards? And I wanted to make sure whatever education and certification I got at the Naval Academy was going to also set me up for success after my military career. And so, you know, at 17, 18, 19 years old, I had no idea what I wanted to do post-military, but I thought that, you know what, I, I really enjoy political science. I enjoy political philosophy. I enjoy understanding different people's perspectives. And as I think back, I think one of the things that I enjoy most about my degree is that it exposed me to a lot of literature and political paradigms that I think allows me to view the world and solve business problems in ways that are unique. And I think that, you know, oftentimes in tech, Tech operates in big numbers. It talks about growth and about scale. And oftentimes, it's easy to forget the people. It's easy to forget the individuals that you're serving. And I think that with the humanities degree, and maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but it makes sense to me as I think about it. You know, when you're reading different philosophers and understanding different economic systems and political systems, you realize that my way as a white male living in the United States, there's I, I view the world a certain way. And when you are exposed to other kinds of philosophies that the humanities exposes you to, you realize there's a lot of different perspectives to consider. And so when I think about my customer, I don't just think about a white male. I take into account all the different backgrounds, all the different experiences that are interacting with the service that I'm providing. And I think that's that's really, that's it's not only helpful in the business that I have, but I think in tech in general, it's really important. Cool. Well, after you graduated, as you've already suggested, you did serve in uniform and you served for nine years. And that included working in the White House military office for three years as a lieutenant. And I was reading on your CV, you were developing and evaluating training exercises for multi-billion dollar classified national security programs, as well as emergency preparedness plans supporting the president, vice president, and cabinet secretaries. How do you think what you did in that role, working on training exercises for national security programs and emergency preparedness plans, prepared you for the business world? Yeah, so that I think the clearest way to define how that set me up is that it, it's unique, right? Continuity of government, which is what I was working on, is a transferable skill. And this is something I find a lot of folks leaving the military have, have difficulty, and, and rightfully so. It's really difficult to translate the work you did in the military as a submariner, as an aviator, as a Navy SEAL, as a Marine. You know, how does that translate to the business world? And for me, leaving the White House and having the experience that I did, I was able to join a consulting firm that was looking to build a service offering around business continuity. So I was able to articulate how my experience working on continuity of government and continuity of operations as it relates to the federal government translated well to the business world. And so soon after I left the military, after some time in New York, working at a nonprofit, I joined a consulting firm and helped them build and develop a service offering around the work that I had done at the White House. So when you're in the military, it's really, really difficult to articulate that. But if you're able to find a comparable skill or a comparable experience to something that the business community needs and wants, then you're able to sort of justify why a certain job might be a good fit for you. See, it's so interesting because I, looking at your resume, see the function of what you did at PRTM. 
mm-hmm. which is a subsidiary of PwC. And it says that you advance the development of a risk and resiliency framework to help corporate and government clients identify hazards, right? Emergencies, mm-hmm. respond to a crisis and develop risk-based strategy. It seems like such a parallel to what you were doing in government. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was fortunate. I mean, I was really fortunate. It, it's a little bit easier. I mean, I was wearing a suit and tie at the at the White House and working on a project and working on activities that were that had direct applicability to the business world. Now, I had to find a specific business and a specific consulting firm that was looking to build this specific competency, but it existed. And through the discussions with mentors, I was able to find this opportunity. It didn't just, I didn't find it on LinkedIn. I got lucky but but it you know it took effort on my part. It took a lot of phone calls, a lot of coffees to find the opportunity. It was difficult, but it really was hand in glove. As soon as I landed at, at PRTM and landed with the team, the small team that was working on this, I, I felt right at home and it was a great way to transition out of the military. So you found it through networking. Yeah, yeah. I actually so I was after leaving the military, I moved to New York City and worked at a nonprofit and that job didn't last very long. I was only in the job for about two months and but was in New York for about a year after that. And, and over the course of the next eight to 10 months after leaving the nonprofit, I was networking. And I found, and this is an interesting sort of roundabout way of, of getting a job, but I applied to this job randomly online at PRTM. And I took the train from New York back to DC, was in my hotel room that night, ironing my shirt, and I got a phone call. And on the other end of the line, the guy said, Hey, this is Steve Taylor. My name is John. And you and I have met at a Naval Academy water polo alumni game. <laughs> and I, I, I knew the name, but I didn't remember the face. And he says, listen, I work at the company that you're interviewing with tomorrow. Your resume came across my desk today. And I just wanted to tell you what you should be expecting. And he told me the four partners I'd be I'd be speaking with. He told me their backgrounds. Now he didn't tell me the, he didn't give me the answers to the test, but he definitely said, "Get this one partner talking about the Washington Capitals, and he will talk about that the entire time." Because his <laughs> sons play hockey. This person played baseball at Harvard, so get to him talking about his experience at Harvard, and you know he's going to ask you case study questions. And so, you know, again, he didn't give me the job and he didn't give me the answers to the test, but he definitely went out of his way to make sure that I was prepared as possible for the interviews. And long story short, interviews went well, got an offer. And this individual, I credit John for me getting that job. In fact, when I got the offer, he he went so far to say, send me a copy of the offer letter. I want to look at it and tell you, help you negotiate. And without those kinds of mentors, right, I mean, I don't, I mean, right out of the military, I don't know my value. I don't know my value. And he, he got me a signing bonus. You know, there was no signing bonus as part of my offer. And he says, you know what, they're giving signing bonuses away here. You should ask for one. And I did. And I, and I got a, I got a signing bonus. And so you have to do your job to reach out to mentors. You have to foster mentors, but sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you get lucky and mentors find you. And I, I think in this case, I was lucky. Steve, what advice do you have for the men and women in uniform right now about how to think about the skills they're acquiring on the job, the skills they're honing on the job, and how that translates into the private sector once they're out of uniform? Yeah, yeah. This is one of the hardest things. And there are, there are 
companies that are set up, there are consulting companies that are set up to help transitioning military members find their voice and create resumes that are relatable to the outside world, to the business world. I always tell folks in the military who are about to make that transition or making that transition, there's two things you can leverage. One, your experience managing people. And it's not just about leadership. It's about you you don't just have the soft skills leaving the military. You have oftentimes the hard skills of people management. And what I mean by that is there it's not just about being friendly or it's not be about being just a good listener or or being empathetic. Like those are really great soft skills as as it relates to being an effective manager of people, but understanding how to structure your time to make sure you're supporting your team. Right. Like the the paradigms and the hard skills of understanding what it means to really intimately understand your people, what they need and how to provide them the resource they need to get their jobs done. I I mean, I I didn't just learn about leadership. I learned about empowerment, how to empower people. And I was fortunate to have an amazing collection of leaders in my aviation experience that taught me how to get the best out of teams, the best out of individuals. And, And I think your ability as a military member to articulate that experience is really helpful. But that's not enough. That's not up. You really have to explain your framework. How have you in the military, how have you structured your your work? And what kind of structured discipline process can you bring to an organization? That's also really important. I think the third thing is you really have to be able to express that you're a learner, that you're coachable, that you are that you have held many different positions. For instance, if you know, I was an aviator, but I was in flight school and I learned to fly three different kinds of aircraft. I was living in Japan for three years and I had five different collateral duties. When I wasn't flying, I had a full-time job running the admin department or running the safety department. So I had many skills that I had to learn. Every nine to 12 months, I had a, a new job that wasn't just flying. And then at the White House, I had to learn a whole different skill set. And so I think that if you're able to articulate the fact that you are not just capable and qualified to do the job, but you can manage people very well, you understand systems and frameworks, and you're able to bring discipline and process to an organization, and that you're also, you, you're adaptable and you have the ability to learn quickly. I think those are the, the characteristics that I try to tell every every military member that's trying to make the, a successful transition from the military to the business world. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So I just have two final questions for you. And I try to ask all time for coffee guests these questions. In particular, if you could share a time in your professional life, Steve, when you struggled, maybe you failed, as so many of us have, but most importantly, how you picked yourself up and the lesson that you may have learned in the process. Mm. So I think one of the big one of the biggest failures that I experienced was leaving the military. I was 31 years old and most of my peers had left college and they entered the workforce at 21, 22. And I was 31, 32 entering the workforce for the first time. And I moved from Washington, DC, where I was at the White House and finished grad school, moved to New York City to work at a nonprofit. And the nonprofit was focused on helping military veterans transition from military life to civilian life and working on public policy issues specific to mental health and education. And at the end of the day, it just it wasn't a good fit for me and I wasn't a good fit for them. You know, and there's lots of reasons for that. I probably went towards something I thought I wanted to do, but it really I it wasn't a good fit. I also had was working on my grad school thesis at the time. So every day I went to the office, learned a new job, worked an eight, nine hour day, went home and went across the street to the Starbucks on the Upper East Side and worked on my graduate school thesis. At the same time my dad had a minor stroke, he lives in California, and my girlfriend at the time was living in Europe. 
And so I was stretched way too thin. I had way too much on my plate. Mentally, when I was at work, I really wasn't mentally there. And within two months, my boss fired me. And I say fire, I, you know, I wasn't let go, it wasn't downsized. I was fired for not performing. And it was probably one of the most difficult experiences I've ever had. I mean, you know, here I am, I had a successful college experience. I was in the military, I worked at the White House, I had a graduate degree, I had all the tools in the toolkit that you would think one would need, a loving, supporting family, great friends. But I was struggling and I was struggling mentally with my transition out of the military. I was going to counseling at the time to, to help with the transition. I was suffering depression, had anxiety. But getting fired was, while a very difficult experience, was probably one of the most formative experiences of my life. And, 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 and because of the way I was fired, the, the executive director of the nonprofit called me into his office and said, we're letting you go. You didn't meet the expectations. And they sat down with me for another 35 to 45 minutes and, and talked me through his transition from the military and how hard it was and that he empathized with what I was going through. He also recommended two things. He says, you know, every time I'm in a difficult time, I always pick up the book, The Alchemist. Oh my gosh, says, I'm rereading yeah. it right now. Are you? Uh, yeah, I've read it. I've read it several times since this conversation. And he says, you know, every time I'm having a struggle, I reread that book. And the lessons from that book help me get through whatever I'm going through. And then the second thing he said is find mentors. Find mentors to help you. You you can't you can't be successful. You you can't be successful, let alone survive, without people helping you along the way. And oftentimes I have, and I've been guilty of this myself, you have to hold people accountable. And when you let people slide and you don't hold people accountable, you don't do them, you know, you do them a disservice. You're not doing them any favors. And so when I got fired, while as difficult as it was, he handled it professionally, he was kind, and he left me with a, a several lessons, which I still carry forth on this day. And what I learned from that experience was that while I had been successful professionally and personally in my life up to that point, that I had limits. And I'm moving to a city, I'm changing jobs, my girlfriend's in Europe, my dad in California has a medical condition, I'm working on a, a graduate school thesis. I was, I was at my limits. And I was doing my best to sort of bring things under control. And I just, I, there was too much on my plate and I, and I cracked. And so that was the lesson I took from that experience. I also was a lift for four and a half years and I left in December of this past year and I took four months off. I deliberately didn't want to work for four months and I found the current job I'm in with Luke working at Fixed through an introduction through the founder of Lyft, John Zimmer. John Zimmer put us in touch two years ago. Luke and I had kept in touch and after leaving Lyft in December, Luke and I reconnected right before COVID hit. And I interviewed with Luke, got the job as COO at Fixed, and leaving Lyft, a company that I had helped, I had helped build the business in the Mid-Atlantic. And when I left, I had 200 people that I was looking after, and I had built amazing relationships. And I had, you know, a lot of ways put my fingerprints over, you know, on the business here on the East Coast in, in a meaningful way. And I, so much a part of my identity was was tied to the experience that I had at Lyft. And leaving is it's like a divorce. It's like it's like a breakup. It's really, really difficult. Your identity is caught into that experience. Then and, and fortunately I had developed a network similar to the way I had did when I left IABA or I had left this uh, the nonprofit in New York. It was after leaving New York I found John Jensen. It was I found the guy John who helped me get the job at PRTM. Similarly, after I had left Lyft, I reconnected with Luke. And this, I think this goes back to, you have to, you have to build a network. This goes back to the conversation I have with the executive director of reading the alchemist, finding mentors, leveraging mentors, 
building relationships because you never know when you're going to need them. And it's been in the darkest times of my professional and personal life that I have needed people the most. And, and oftentimes, as luck would have it, that's when people come out. They come out of the woodwork when you need help. And you know, I've, I've just been really fortunate in my career to have friends and mentors to help me along the way. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And the other thing that I take out of The Alchemist, in addition to the mentors, is finding your true north and taking risks, being comfortable with uncertainty and following your interests. That's the following your true north. That's right. We agree. Yeah. Final question. If you could go back to college, Steve, back to the Naval Academy and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, mm-hmm. what advice would you give yourself? I mean, I think the first is develop mentors early. That's the first one. And, you know, I, I think I have missed so many opportunities to identify a mentor. And, and mentor is such an overused term sometimes, but it's, you know, somebody who's a little bit older, somebody who's a few steps ahead of you in life and nurture those relationships. There are incredible military officers, professors, friends that, that I wish I would have just kept in touch with. And, and the great thing is like, that's something you could always start. You, it's via LinkedIn or Facebook. You would always find these individuals and circle back. But if I'm talking to somebody who's in college right now, I'd say, you know, find the people that you admire the most, whether they're a professor or, you know, a, a roommate or, a, you know, a, a teammate and, and just put in the effort to keep up with that person because those relationships will serve you well down the line. And I think that that is some, one thing I want to do over again is, is really invest in mentors. The second thing is <laughs> taking more risks. I feel that I, the older I get, and this is counter to the older I get, the more comfortable I get with risk. And I think that's because I'm more confident in who I am. I'm more comfortable in my own skin. I have built in financial safety nets where I, where I can take risks that I maybe wasn't comfortable in taking in my, in my earlier days. But at the end of the day, like if you're surrounding yourself with, if you're fortunate to have a supporting family and, and friends, you're not going to fail. You have to sometimes think about what's the worst possible outcome that could happen and then think that through. And, and I think when you do that, you often realize that the worst case scenario is never really that bad. And so freeing myself early on to make mistakes and take risks, I wish I would have done that. I wish I wouldn't have played things so safe. You know, there's a time and a place to take precaution and err on the side of safety. But when you're young, maybe I should discern the risk from safety. You always want to be safe, but take risks. And you, if you have a passion, if you have a, an interest in something, pursue it. And if it's the wrong path, there's always time you're young to go back and, and do a redo. And you will take with you the experience of having made the wrong turn, but you'll never regret having made a decision once you choose it. So that's what I would say. I would say develop mentors and, and take more risks. Love it. I have come to the point now that I look at my failures, which at the time I was ashamed of, you know, losing jobs and other things in that that would fall into that category. Instead of looking at it as a scarlet letter, something to be ashamed of, I see them as badges of honor. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, it's if you see, and I talk, I tell my employees all the time, don't be concerned with promotion. Be concerned with growth and development. And when you focus on your growth and development, that's like you're going to look back and be really, really proud of, of what you've done, what you've accomplished, the challenges you've taken on. When you're focused only on promotion, you take the predictable route. You take the route that is not necessarily going to grow and develop you the most, but the route that's going to get you the promotion, which isn't always in the long term, 
the most beneficial thing for you. Yeah. Not necessarily the big win. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Steve, I want to thank you so much for making time for Nespresso with me today and the Time for Coffee community. For our young listeners, if you want to learn how to break into the tech field, the tech startup world, check out show notes for this episode to see if Steve's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Continued best wishes for a quick move? What what would be the next stage to young adulthood for <laughs> fixed and soon to old age, I guess, when you yeah. end up, is the proper terminology that you would get bought or what, what would you say that next yeah, that, step that you would get? That would be great. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That would be great. Okay. I mean, this would be great, but, but really just the continuing to develop and grow as a company. And, and yeah, that's, that's it. The goal is just to continue to grow as a company, become profitable. And yeah, that's the path we're on. Okay. Well, I wish you all of that and more. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.